Sometime later in the Gospel of Mark, the followers of Jesus begin to jostle for position. They start throwing elbows. They want the seats that are right next to him at the right and the left of their leader. They want to be as close to him as they can be. And when they ask this of him, he replies in Mark chapter 10, well, James, John, anyone within earshot, if you want this, can you share in the baptism with which I was baptized? Jesus' baptism here in Mark 1 is among the most important and revealing things that we can learn about Him. In the Gospel of Mark, it is the very first thing. In fact, there's no birth narrative, no genealogy, no angelic choir against the midnight sky. There's no cast of characters. There's no nativity scene. The very first thing is this. He was baptized by John in the wilderness. Because... For those of us who want to be close to Him, His right or His left, as close as we can be, it seems that His baptism tells us something about what this is like. The early church thought so. The festival of Epiphany began as a way to emphasize some of the earliest and most important traits of Jesus. It was less about three kings than it was about first things, as in the first parts of Jesus' life and ministry in adulthood. So, Epiphany traditionally focused not only on the visit of the Magi that we focused on last week, but also on things like Jesus' first miracle at Cana, His first followers along the Sea of Galilee, and His first act at the Jordan River, going out to John to be baptized by him because this tells us who he is and who we are if we're going to follow. Because no, This is not just any baptism. This is from a specific person, from the fire-breathing prophet John. Throughout the season of Advent, we remembered how Jesus chose to associate his life and his ministry with this one who was out on the edges of things, who was calling thunderously for change. His baptism was not just any baptism. It was a baptism of repentance. The reality that the world is not as it should be and that those who would be faithful to God should confess their sins, should change their direction, should pivot and imagine and start working for the world as it ought to be, as God created it to be. And such a baptism doesn't just occur anywhere. It occurs in the wilderness, in a marginal place, far from the centers of power, you see. It's out there with people who learn to survive on little more than locusts and rainwater. This is where people gathered when they wanted to change things. This was the site where revolutions started. This is where people dreamed big dreams and organized themselves to work for something new. You want to be close to me? Jesus asks us, well, can you share in this? Can you share in the baptism with which I was baptized? Reverend John Buchanan is a retired minister, a longtime pastor at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, editor for many years of the monthly periodical, The Christian Century. And upon his retirement, he used this platform to reflect on the most powerful and memorable moments of his career in ministry. And he listed above all of them a baptism. It was the baptism of a baby, as is the practice of Presbyterian churches. Some of you have experienced this yourselves. 
as congregation and family, make many of the same promises that we make in a baby dedication in our tradition, and then raise that child in love and faith and encourage them as they decide to confirm that faith as their own later in life. It is a similar process of growth and discipleship, but the water is in a different place. And usually the child is a participant, but is not so responsive except in some cases. And in this case, Reverend Buchanan put his hand on the little boy's head. And he used the words of the Presbyterian prayer book, You are a child of God. You are sealed by the Spirit. And you belong to Jesus Christ forever. And as he finished the pronouncement, this little boy looked up and responded, "Uh Uh-oh! This hilarious reflex of childhood honesty. Then again, maybe the little boy understood it better than any of us. One of the most powerful baptisms I have ever witnessed occurred the summer after my first year of college. I was working for an organization that sponsored mission experiences for youth groups in Appalachia. And I was one of four young adults on a team. I was given the keys to an old donated pickup truck and with the key, given the charge to drive amidst the hills and the hollers, meeting people, getting to know the community, looking for potential sites where we might be able to bring a team of 12 to 15 youth for painting, for light home repair. They just turned me loose. In the course of this, I met a local minister, Pastor John, as he was known, and he became a friend, he became a resource for our leadership team. And many Sunday mornings, when we were in between hosting groups, I would drive the old pickup truck to the Harmony Holiness Church. By going to that service, I, on my own, increased attendance by about 5 to 10%, depending on the Sunday. Well, one Sunday it was baptism week, and a much bigger crowd, but Clapboard Church had no indoor baptistry, and so baptisms were held at the local rock quarry after the Sunday services. And I went along, I joined the congregation that was gathered on the shore, I watched as people were lifted up out of the water by this larger-than-life holiness preacher, and also by the strength of that promise that we are raised to walk in newness of life. We held towels for those coming back to the shore. We sang hymns, take me to the water, we sang. It was a deeply powerful scene as one by one people stepped into the water for baptism. And as I stood there on the shore and as I witnessed all of this, I noticed that as they walked into the water, they passed a sign on the shore, white aluminum with red letters, Swim at your own risk. And I've never forgotten that image. Because isn't that the invitation into these waters? Isn't that the invitation into this life, into this call to share not just in any baptism, but in the baptism of Jesus? Now of course, we have relocated all of this. We have a pool We have a roving room. We have a team of faithful volunteers who host and attend to every need. We are able to control the temperature of the water. On the Sundays when we hold a baptism here at First Baptist Greensboro, the morning starts with the regular temperature check and report. And we will modify to ensure that the water is not too cold, not too hot, but a tolerable tepid or at least lukewarm 
Now granted, it is a gift to have this space, this inheritance that allows us all to gather, to have a clear view, to bear witness to the story of our faith that is told in the life of a believer in these waters. To be able to stand here in this sanctuary and to offer our affirmation and our commitment and our rededication to our faith collectively with one voice. We do not need to be at the river or the rock quarry to experience the power of baptism. But we do need to ask ourselves if there are other parts of our faith that we have brought indoors. What parts of the way of Jesus have we tried to control? Domesticate? Insulate? Has it become too safe? Have we grown too comfortable with the conditions and the temperature? Have we settled as we do for lukewarm? Jesus was baptized outdoors in this moving and flowing water that would signal the course of His life in this Spirit that would lead Him from there. He was baptized in a wilderness where people gathered to imagine the world anew. He was baptized by John. Later in Acts, Peter will preach to new believers that Jesus was baptized in the baptism preached by John. This baptism that called people to repentance and radical renewal, that recognizes that everything changes, that life can never be the same. Jesus was immersed in that. And then up from the water, He heard those words of God, I am pleased in You, the voice said, My child, My beloved. And it was out there where everyone could hear it. And out there where everyone could see the red letter signs. Because to share in the baptism of Jesus, it's to risk. It's to do something dangerous. It's to do something that ought to be fraught and fearsome. And isn't this the way of it with the most important things in life? Isn't this the way of it with the truest things in life? The deepest and the most lasting things. The things that are most revealing about us. The things that are most enduring in our living. A minister friend in upstate New York once shared the story of a parishioner who some years ago wrote of an exercise that had changed her life and she had wanted to have a portrait done and had gone to an artist's studio. And this artist was very insightful and took time with subjects asking questions that were aimed at knowing them better and drawing out the truest part of oneself. And eventually, the artist asked her this question probing and deep. What is it that you fear the most? He thought that would reveal an essence that could be captured. And her first answer was, uh, the most? I, I guess I fear nuclear war the most. She mentioned that she had repeatedly had nightmares about this apocalyptic nuclear holocaust. Well, yes, that's terrifying, but the artist said, is there something more personal? And she answered, well, I guess losing my children. I'm terrified that something could happen to them, that I couldn't get to them. Is that it, the artist said. Is that your greatest fear? And she took some time, she thought and she thought, she reflected deeply, and finally something else dawned on her. her. You know what I fear the most, she says? 
I guess what I fear the most is that I'll get to the end of my life and I'll realize that I have been too fearful. That I've been too careful. That I have never truly used my gifts. And the artist said, now hold that pose. Because aren't we too careful? Aren't we too insulated so often? What are we doing in spite of the fact of our fear? What are we willing to risk for the things that we believe in? Because ultimately, that is where baptism leads us. That's where it led Jesus. In Luke's version of the story, immediately the Spirit pushes Him out into the wilderness where He's tempted to be so many things other than He is and where He has to hear again that echo of God's love for Him. And then he emerges from that wilderness and his very first stop is back home in Nazareth where he stands at the front of the synagogue and he proclaims what his ministry is going to be about. Good news to the poor and release for the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to let the oppressed go free to proclaim this now here as the year of the Lord's favor. And they respond by driving him out of town. They nearly throw him off a cliff because it's so threatening, so provocative. And while Jesus walks right through that crowd on the hill outside of Nazareth, we know, of course, that on the hill outside Jerusalem, the world that He sought to call to something new is able to silence Him finally. Not so long ago, an episode of the radio magazine This American Life, which aired around this time of year, it included the story told by a father And he was describing an interaction with his four-year-old daughter at Christmas. It was the first time that she had ever asked about what the holiday meant. And he explained that it was about celebrating the birth of Jesus. So they bought a Bible. They had readings at night. She loved it. She read about his life, his birth, his teaching, his parables. And one day they were driving past a church, and outside of this church there was this enormous crucifix. Well, who's that? The four-year-old daughter said, Oh, uh, well, well, that's Jesus, and um, I guess I forgot to tell you about the ending, the father said. He ran afoul of the Roman government. His message caused a lot of trouble for the authorities at the time, and so they decided that he had to die. The little girl received all of this, and it was about a month later, it was after Christmas, And going through what Christmas meant, it was mid-January and her preschool had taken some days off as the public schools had as well. And they had taken off Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So the father took off work, he took his daughter out to lunch, and on the table there was this leftover local section of the newspaper. And there was this front page drawing from a school-aged child of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And she said, who's that? Oh, well that's... Dr. Martin Luther King, he's the reason you're off school today. This is the day that we celebrate his life. So who was he? Oh, well, he was a preacher. And she looked up and she said, a preacher for Jesus? Well, yeah, actually he was. But there were other things that he was also famous for. He had this message. And his father was carefully phrasing this for his four-year-old daughter, trying to say something that she might be able to understand. He was a preacher and he had this message. And she says, what was his message? And he said, 
Well, Martin Luther King, he said that you should treat everybody the same, no matter what they look like. And she thought about that for a minute, and she said, well, that's what Jesus said. Well, you know, I guess it is, the father said. I never really thought about it that way before. And the daughter thought for a minute, and then she looked up and she said, did they kill him too? Tomorrow, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. would be 95 years old. In his very last sermon, Ebenezer Baptist Church on February 4th, 1968, this famous sermon, The Drum Major Instinct, his text came from the Gospel of Mark where James and John, they sit at the right and the left of Jesus. They want to know, how do we get close to you? And Jesus says, do you know what you're asking for? To share in the baptism that I am baptized with? And Dr. King goes on to reflect on this baptism of Jesus into which he invites all of us, a way that is costly, that asks so much, that invites us to come and give our all, and it even leads Dr. King to begin to envision his own death. And every now and then I think about that. I think about my own death, he said, and I think about my funeral. And I don't think of it in a morbid sense, understand. Every now and then I ask myself, what is it that I would want said? And if any of you are around, I don't want a long funeral. Tell anybody who delivers a eulogy not to talk too long. Tell them not to mention accomplishments or awards. I'd like somebody to say that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life away serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that Martin Luther King tried to love somebody. I want to say that day that I tried to be right on the war question. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to give my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to say that day that I tried to live my life in a way that reached for those who were oppressed. I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Yes, if you want to say that I was some sort of drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Because he was not assassinated for some embraceable claim that all people are created equal or for some benign message that people be judged by the content of their character but for the far more dangerous demand that comes from truly sharing in the baptism of Jesus and calling that the world could be different, could be more, could be as God intended, calling us to change, calling us toward what we in baptism call being raised to walk in the newness of life. So we want to be close to Jesus. What are we doing that's dangerous? What are we risking for this new way? How are we putting ourselves on the line? And if we're not, what is the baptism that we are sharing? Amen.